diving podcast with Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving podcast. This week on the show, we have Mano Latuff. He is a DJ and producer from Ireland. He's lived for many years in Europe, though. I first got to know him in Berlin. In fact, we moved over around the same time, but our musical paths didn't cross for a few years after living in the city. Uh, he now lives in Switzerland and is a, um, a very in-demand DJ and a prolific producer. He's released an album last year on Pampa Records, DJ Cozy's label, and it was pretty great. We talk about that in the conversation. And um, yeah, he's an interesting guy with some uh, interesting things to say. He, he mentioned to me after we having this conversation that uh, this was the first long-form podcast that he'd done. So um, he was a bit unsure about how well he'd come across, but I think he he, he did fine. He came across fine. Anyway, um, yeah. So just before we get into it, my usual request for ratings and reviews, wherever you're listening to this podcast, it really does help. Hit that five-star button. And if you have any comments, then join us on the Discord. There's a link in the show notes to join us there. Of course, you can get me on Twitter as well for that purpose, at Scuba Official. And also, there is a Spotify playlist containing most of the music that we talk about on the show. And of course, all the episodes as well. So that's a good way to follow the show in addition to just checking the conversation every week. Just before we start, I've got three shows in North America this weekend and three next weekend. I'll just tell you about the first three now quickly. Denver on the 10th of March, Minneapolis, my first ever show in Minneapolis on the 11th of March and Toronto on the 12th of March. Looking forward to those. I'll give you a bit more info after the conversation where I come back and uh, yeah, just I guess chat <laughs> a bit more. Anyway, let's get into it. Without further delay, here is Mano Latuff. Mano Latuff, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm pretty well. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right, thanks. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to jump in with a question. Okay. Um, you're obviously a, a DJ of some repute, and... Um, You've had a pretty heavy touring schedule over the years, obviously less so in the last two years, but just I'm um, putting that to one side for a moment. I wanted to ask you about your like relationship with with touring and making music and you know whether it's actually possible to have a heavy touring schedule and get to where you really want to get to creatively in the studio. So maybe just tell me a bit about that to kick off. Um, yeah, I think it's really difficult to have both or to be able to do both fully. Um, it's quite often you see like artists and they uh, when they're kind of coming up or before they become touring artists they uh, have like a pretty like exciting release schedule or make like interesting music and they kind of have that first wave and then they get successful and it kind of drops off and they're kind of not as innovative as they were before Um, so I, I actually think it's impossible to to be able to achieve what you kind of what you're able to achieve before you're touring heavily again after you start touring heavily without making some sacrifices and the sacrifices you know playing less or yeah getting off the carousel a bit but it is really difficult 
and like how has that affected like you personally over the years yeah i mean like i feel like before or just when i was kind of coming up or whatever i I had like a really you know i was releasing quite a lot of records and developing my sound and then i started doing you know over 100 shows a year or whatever and then that kind of dropped off a bit and then you're just kind of you're kind of playing catch up all the time then to you know to get back to into like a kind of good creative flow um yeah i mean do you, do you find it's like because i mean certainly in my in my experience like i was able to put like put the hours in in the studio it was it wasn't wasn't really like that it was just getting to the right i guess kind of mental space you know to get to that get to that level yeah i think like a massive factor as well is when you're djing all the time you're just kind of bombarded with all this information at the weekend you know if you play if you go and dj for the weekend and you play three gigs in a row and you play like 12 hours then your brain is just completely bombarded with music, you know, and like mm. loud sound. And then if you go back into the studio afterwards, it's really difficult to to yeah be become creative. Or yeah, I, th- I just think you really need to you need to make you need to give yourself time to kind of come down from touring and then be able to work in the studio again. Yeah, I mean, like I guess a sort of adjacent question would be to like to um uh, to what extent have you. Like, has your work in the studio kind of informed your DJ set? Or, or to, to put it another way, um, like, to what extent do you make tunes for your DJ set? Like, I mean, to an extent, I mean, I'm sure that's true. But, like, yeah, how, how important is that in the way you're thinking about making music? Yeah, I don't know, really. I go through periods of, like, uh, wanting to make, like, dance tracks. And then I'll work on those for a while. And then I go through periods where that just isn't interesting me at all. Um, So, yeah, I... I, I'm not the type of producer that is just like, okay, this is like, I'm going to make this tune because it's going to work like this in situations like festivals and clubs. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. They're kind of two separate things for me that kind of overlap sometimes. But yeah, the functionality of what I, when I make music is not always the first priority. Yeah, and I guess I guess in that context, like the more you play, the more difficult it is to get back into that kind of groove, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know. I, I actually sometimes I think when I'm touring a lot and playing like loads of shows, then I actually don't even want to make dance music as much because I'm just kind of overwhelmed by, you know, <laughs> listening to it all the time, you know. So it's like it's hard to feel like the, uh, yeah, to feel like inspired by that when you're just bombarded with it at the weekends. I mean, is that where the kind of poppier side of your output comes from mentally? Uh, I think that comes from just like, you know, the music that I was into growing up more than more than, you know, what I'm experiencing at that time. So just like a lot of influences I had since I was a kid um, that just kind of comes out when I want to make music. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, listen, um, let's then like step back a bit and, and go back to your kind of way into the whole thing. I was kind of interested because, I mean, I was reading a few of your previous interviews in the last um, couple of hours. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and I think like there definitely seems to be a tendency to kind of characterize you as a DJ, like primarily. And I don't know, I don't know how fair that really is because you definitely seem to be a person who's pretty like deeply steeped in, in making music. So like, like give us a sense of like, you know, like what your like like you know the the first steps, I guess, in your kind of like journey to to actually being a producer and and getting into that side of things in a kind of professional way. Yeah, it's like I, I didn't grow up wanting to be a DJ. You know, I just wanted to like write music, and play music, playing bands, play guitar, 
So, like, that's where I come from. You know, that's kind of what I grew up doing. Like, you know, sometimes when you're on the road, you're speaking to people and they talk about when they're growing up and what they were into. And they're like, they were just into dance music. And that's like so alien for me because um, I just didn't grow up like that. So um, actually making music and producing music was kind of happened before DJing for me. Um, so like I, I mean, my first recordings were like, you know, me playing guitar and singing at home, sang into like a Gateway 2000 some like free audio program like Cool Edit Pro or something. Yeah. So um, <laughs> that's like how I started making music. Um, and then I just kind of, yeah, like only when I was around 19, 20, I started going uh, clubbing. Um, and it was at that time, the kind of crossover time of like, band, you know, like electro, electro clash, electro house, whatever you want to call it, um, in the early 2000s. So I was kind of coming from the more uh, band uh, part of that. And then just started DJing at that time. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Sorry, if I can just jump in there. That's interesting yeah. you say that because um, I had Tigger on the show a few weeks ago and he was talking about like the various different kind of inputs to that, like electro sound. And there definitely was a kind of indie rock like side to it. Yeah, so, totally. Uh, so yeah, so that was your, was that, was that your, like the first hook into electronic stuff then? Was it, was it that thing? Well, kind of. I mean, like I've been really conscious of electronic music when I was really young because it was like the... You know, er, you know, er, really early nineties, and like older, like friends, older brothers were like giving us like prodigy tapes, and like we were kind of listening to pirate radio and stuff when we were, but we were like, you know, not even in our teens yet. Um, so going to clubs and stuff was still not on our on our radar. So I was, you know, I'd been aware of like dance music. You couldn't not be in in Ireland or the UK in the nineties. Um, but then I just was completely into guitar music then for like most of my teens, and then. Uh, then kind of, yeah, went into electronic music from the guitar side of music again. So what kind of guitar bands were you into? Just like, I was in a couple, one really, really, really bad kind of, like we were like a terrible LCD sound system. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that must have been 2000s then. Yeah, it was like around 2004, I would say, something right, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. But I mean, like, but in, but in like going back a bit further, though, like when, yeah. like, you know, when you were growing up, like what, what kind of, who were you into? Like, you know, like which bands? I went through a lot of different kind of stages, you know, like I was a metaler for about a year and a half or two years. That's come up like <laughs> repeatedly on the podcast as it well. So it, yeah. to, talking but, to Machine Drum, Machine Drum is heavy into metal. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's really funny, isn't it? It's like for a lot of people to go through like these stages. So I was into that. I was into Nirvana actually when I was really young as well. Um that was actually before I was into metal and then was into metal for like a, yeah, a couple of years. It kind of grew out of that and was into like uh, like Neil Young, the Beatles. I had like a stage of that and then was into like Talking Heads and New Wave and stuff. Um, and then, yeah, then kind of started getting into dance culture again. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, obviously you're from Ireland, so like the accent gives it away yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Um, you're from, I think it's just outside Dublin that you, you grew up. Yeah, yeah. So what was it, so what was the scene like there then but when when you when you kind of just got to the age where when you mentioned that you didn't start going out raving really until you were you know 19 20 but like yeah. what were the what was the kind of i guess the kind of cultural landscape for want of a better term um like around where you were growing up like what was the um, what were the kind of things that like the important things that were going on for for young kids around there um kind of everyone played music so like when i grew up it was just like loads of like kind of 
you know, you'd just be playing in garage bands and stuff with your friends and like tons of people I knew made music and actually from the village I'm from, like quite a lot of artists actually ended up coming out of there. Um, like uh, the guys, you know, Solar Bears. Oh yeah. Um, Automatic Tasty. Uh, yeah, The Drifter, me. There's like quite a lot of people all kind of like, uh, not like doing it together, but um, yeah, just kind of everyone kind of grew up playing instruments and stuff. It was like really normal. So uh yeah, and that but then like with their kind of electronic music and stuff that didn't happen until I kind of moved more into Dublin when I was like yeah, nineteen twenty, something like that. And then I mean I I didn't go to Dublin until I don't know, I mean in terms of like, you know, going to go out. Yeah. yeah. I mean I'm I'm also my, my family are also from Ireland, but we're from Ker- Kerry, so yeah. it's a different thing. But like so what was Dublin like when you first started, you know, you know, going out there, I guess? Like what were the what were the venues? What were the you know the the key nights and all that all that side of things? Like what was what were the important things for you? There is one night called Backlash, which is um, which is run by my friend John Avril, and that's kind of like where it was like on a Thursday night um, in a place called uh, it's called Wax, um, and it's like you know two hundred capacity something like that, and that was like the night where we just used to go every week. Um, there was like tons of like a lot of my like you know bigger group of friends now are from that time um, and it was just like it was it was just like that amazing moment you know when you kind of meet a big group of friends you're all going out all all the time it was like a real scene you know everyone kind of started DJing at that time um, yeah that was kind of that was like pretty much the start of it for me you know because it was a real scene you know um, and then there was like yeah, parties that kind of grew from that and stuff as well and who was who was getting booked for those parties? It was like mostly locals. So it was like John Averill and but I remember they had like DJ Hell once, they had Damien Lazarus. Um I think that yeah, I think they had Jacques Leconte maybe. Um but it wasn't really based on guests because I mean the club is tiny, you know. Um but yeah, they were some of the guests. But it was like it w- it was really like the residents, you know, playing those kind of like Tiga records and Soul Wax and you know, it was like really that era. Um yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And like, I mean, but there were presumably bigger clubs and bigger venues doing similar, well, by putting on, you know, bigger name DJs in, in Dublin. It was that, honestly, that kind of didn't really interest us that much, to be honest. It was like, there was just kind of that scene. And then there was like, there was parallel kind of, obviously like bigger clubs in Dublin at the time, like the Pod and the Red Box. Um, and... There's like body tonic, they did like the Fridays and wax, and that was more kind of like deep house. And like, we weren't into that at all. Like, we just wanted to do like, like electro clashy kind of stuff, you know? It was right, like, yeah, it was yeah, a really yeah. big divide at that time between like, kind of like, say, like deep house and what we were into, which was, yeah, much more for like 19, 20 year olds to just like jump around and go mad. Yeah, it's kind of quite aggressive, some of that music, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But it kind of morphed then out of that and then like kind of. Um, like yeah, Ronan Fitzgerald was one of the DJs there at the time and he had like a blog called Houses of Feeling and he kind of brought kind of I guess more kind of like the German sound of the time like the first kind of get physical records and stuff they became quite big like um, and that kind of I don't know that kind of made that, that was a bit more mature than like some of the other stuff um, yeah it was like it was quite similar to like also to uh, Trash like Earl Alkins Night in London because like John Avril used to play like a lot of like early 80s stuff like New Wave and stuff like that um, oh okay it wasn't the really bad side of like the electro clash sound 
you know it wasn't the really annoying like some of it was but like not that much of it was that really annoying like like cut the head off you uh mid-range kind of electro sound so what i think by the time it got to that stage we had kind of all kind of matured out of that yeah i mean like, i think the like the dancier end of electro crash was the bad stuff right and the um the kind of more indie stuff was like kind of cool the blog house stuff like when it it's like when it got to America it just went terrible you know <laughs> that's a, like a lot of things you know what I mean it just, I think that whole thing kind of passed me by you know it did, I, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah yeah I don't because we've got Machine Drum was talking about it as well yeah. um, when we had him on and like like he was there's a night called Trouble and Bass in New York around okay, that sort okay, of time yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and that which just sounds by the sound of things along the same kind of lines or yeah. maybe they were kind of more like they had a toe in in the kind of electro clash stuff and and the blog house stuff and then were yeah um you know also also in the you know proto dubstep and all, and all that kind of stuff too yeah yeah sure yeah um I, I i mean actually that's that's a question did did any of that kind of dubstep type stuff make it over to dublin around that sort of time and the kind of like 2005 kind of era it kind of did yeah it probably came i'd say like a little bit later like most things to dublin at that time but I rem- then it yeah it did start coming in um around that time and it was like, uh, yeah, they, uh, you know, it, it was really like splintered everything, you know, <laughs> and there was like people who were into that or people who were into the Deep House or people who were into whatever. Um, and there was some kind of crossover, but not that much. Did that, I mean, did that early dubstep stuff kind of make any sense to you musically? Um, it didn't, didn't. It didn't until later, I think. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. It, I mean, it was quite weird, that <laughs> stuff, frankly. Like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it just so, seemed it seemed like a tiny bit pretentious sometimes because it was like I think the people who were playing it in Dublin were like doing it were playing it because it was like I don't know I also I also felt like they were pretty elitist. You know? Really, that's 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 <laughs> really of, yeah. interesting. That's yeah, really yeah, yeah. interesting. I I guess because yeah, I mean I always see it as being something that was basically ignored until a point at which there was a kind of hard pivot and suddenly everyone jumped on it. But I mean, I guess, I guess it was probably perceived as being quite, I don't know, kind of po-faced and taking itself quite seriously, I imagine. A little bit, yeah, yeah. And it was completely different to, to like uh, the nights that we had been like going to and DJing at and stuff. You know, it was like a totally different atmosphere. It was much more serious. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was a feature of that sort of electro cast stuff. It was, it was very kind of like, yeah, kind of pogo-y, you know, like <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how how did your sort of development as a as a producer fit into that then? Because you, you know, you um, said you were messing around from early on, but like, yeah, how did that so gone. Um, I guess like, yeah, so like for the first year or two, I guess I was just kind of DJing at that, and then. I kind of made my first kind of tracks in like 2007 or maybe yeah, 2006, 2007 around then. And then I pretty much went to Berlin after like six, a few months of that. So that was kind of like the next kind of stage, you know? Yeah, actually, I, I did read about this as well because um, you were discovered on MySpace. Is that, is that that's correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that, that's, that's, um, that date that dates it quite quite oh, seriously. It? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so, um, Tell me, tell me about that because it was it um was it Ten Snake who initially came across you? It's Ten Snake, yeah. So so like it's literally the first track that I made. So I guess it was like the start of two thousand seven, maybe, or one of the first tracks. I think it was the first track I finished, and I just put it up on MySpace. And I was living with my friends in. Uh, we lived in a big house in Dublin, which was called Hang Tough, 
which is why I'm called Man of the Tough, which is quite embarrassing, but that's how I got my name. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> and anyway, so I made this track and I put it up on Facebook, or on, not on Facebook, obviously, on, on MySpace. And um, like, yeah, I just went went downstairs, I came back upstairs and I had like a mail saying like, oh, I love your track, I want to put it out. And I was just like, what's going on? This guy from Germany just wants to put out my put out this tune that I made, you know? So just kind of, that was the first, wow. uh, yeah, it was weird. Um, but I mean, there must have been a there must have been a like journey from sitting in front of uh, a mic playing songs into your computer to making a track that Tensnake wants to put out, right? I mean, that can't have just been a a, a straight jump from those two things. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a little bit, but I wasn't really making that much music in between those two kind of things. Like I recorded stuff when I was younger, then I messed around in Fruity Loops a bit. And then I got Ableton and I literally made that track in like the first week I had Ableton and put it up in MySpace. And then I was like, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, which is... Did, did you have any, like, did you like study at all? Like music and all that kind of stuff? Uh, I Yeah, I mean, I could write, I, I kind of taught myself like piano from playing guitar and like I knew like chords and scales and all that. Um, but no, I didn't like study. Uh, but nothing on the kind of engineering side? No, no. No. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. I mean, I didn't really either, to be honest. But yeah. um, okay, so we've um, jumped ahead to Berlin. You mo- moved over about the same time I did, actually. But then our paths didn't really cross for a few years after we'd both been there. I think we were in very different um, kind of musical sections of the place. But like, had you? Had you? I mean, before you moved over, like, I, mean, I presume you you were a little a little bit familiar with the place like what, what, what had your previous experience of it been before moving I'd actually just visited it once um, in like October 2006 and uh, yeah I just like uh, I knew like one other Irish friend there my friend Tara and um, he like took me out for the night we went to Watergate and then we went to Bergheim afterwards Bergheim was not well known in 2006 and when I went there it was just like my mind was blown completely <laughs> <laughs> at that stage I'd never I'd never experienced anything like that before you know it was like such an eye opener um, so well, yeah, basically after just that one visit I just basically then decided to move over yeah just kind of that was it it's like I have to move to Berlin it's class and yeah well I mean fair enough it, it definitely was and, and still is to an extent but it was a def- definitely a different kind of uh, excitement back then around it I mean to be honest massively yeah. well I mean when I moved well when I moved over um, I, I thought I was late. I thought I was really late, actually. Um, and obviously it didn't really pan out like that. But I, I felt like I'd sort of, you know, I'd, I'd followed, um, you know, Richie Horton moving and I think I think in 2001 or something and I, I was a okay, big, big yeah. Richie, Richie fan. And like, um, I figured, oh man, six years after Richie, like, you know, I'm just, you know, whatever. Did you, that's, um, that's really interesting. You thought that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely did, man. I was just like, yeah, I mean, I'm coming over because it's cheap, but like, you know, probably in terms of musically, this is probably probably done, but obviously not. So, I mean, you, so, so give me an idea of like, uh, you know, as I mentioned, we definitely by uh, pitched up in different musical areas. So, so what what were the, what, yeah, how did how did you kind of immerse yourself, I guess, in the city in those initial couple of years or whatever? Just like going, just going out like a lot. For the first, I'd say for the first year, I just went out like all the time, um, and like where, but where, and oh, who, just and like it's just everywhere. I everywhere pretty much apart from Bergheim, which I didn't really go to at that time. I just went to like Bar Twenty Five, uh, 
what else was on Arena like uh, Club Division Air yeah just and then like loads of random other kind of parties uh, just kind of experiencing the city then you know it was so clueless and uh, just kind of met some friends there and then just ended up uh, just kind of going out and stuff yeah so it's interesting you mentioned Club Division Era I had uh, Deadbeat on a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about like his favourite venues and like the places that were super key for him and he mentioned Club Division Era as a as a as one which like in still now he like really is really important to him yeah yeah so like yeah what, so what were the I mean was that a key place and if if you know what were the other like at the absolute sort of like you know the things that really kind of st- stuck out to you back then yeah it's funny it's like it's weird that like it was more about kind of going out at that time for me rather than like musically I mean like you go to bar 25 and you just stay there and have a great time but the music was like not good you know (laughs) (laughs) to be honest it was like not great at all so I guess I kind of yeah it was just like going out quite a lot and having fun at that time Um, but there was definitely something lacking in the kind of music I was hearing you know Um, but then I remember like I've been into like disco a lot before that and kind of Italo disco and um, you know because that kind of crossed over quite a lot with like going to Backlash and stuff like that so uh, that was definitely not you'd never hear that like in Bar 25 or like in most other places it was just like minimal just rule the roost back then you know yeah. <laughs> like, it was just yeah. just minimal <laughs> everywhere um, so then uh, yeah that I mean then like yeah we used to go to uh, so sorry were you not into minimal then? Not really. I mean, I kind of tried to be, I think, but I just realised it was just like not doing much for me. You know, when you're just like, you're, when you are exposed to something like so much, you kind of think like, yeah, maybe I like this. But then like when you have a bit of distance from it, you go like, actually, this isn't really doing it for me at all. So, um, yeah, so that was kind of, that was probably my first year, year and a half in Berlin. Um, and then I kind of stopped going out for a while. Um, and just like was like okay I just kind of have to get my act together here and work on my music and stuff right. so <laughs> so had that had that thing, had that track come out in that in the meantime presumably it, had it, right it, no it had actually been delayed because first of all it was supposed to come out in Tense Next Label then it didn't because he they had some problems or whatever and then Prince why didn't Prince Thomas yeah sorry exactly just, yeah. exactly then I gave Prince Thomas it on CD and he was like oh this is great I'll put it out so and but then it took him another like year and a half and like at that time <laughs> Which is probably a good thing because honestly, I didn't have any skills like when I first made right, it. You it know? gave you the chance to catch up, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I basically, yeah, I just had the time to kind of, I mean, that's what I was doing. I was just making music in that time and kind of like learning how to make music. Um, That was my job, I guess. Um, So, yeah, but it took a while before it was at any sort of decent level. Probably took actually like three years after the first track I made until I started. I had my first kind of you know run of like decent tunes that kind of came out. Was there a moment then where you you decide or well, you realised that it was you know, <laughs> or, or maybe maybe a better way of putting it is that like you became I guess confident in, in what you were doing. Was there a moment yeah. that, that happened or was it uh, gone? I think it was like um, it was like you know going to Berlin, being so like over like. <laughs> I don't know overwhelmed by all the music I was like hearing going out and stuff like I hadn't been exposed to like DJ culture like that before because like in Ireland you know the clubs closed at like 3am um, there was no real 
DJ culture in Ireland at that time compared to Berlin, you know. So I was just kind of overwhelmed, just like um, just taking in all these influences and stuff. But it took me a long time then to kind of realize what what was actually me, you know, like, and that was kind of like a longer kind of process. And that it, it took a few years for me to kind of go, okay, what do I actually want to do? Um, and uh, yeah, so that that was probably around 2010. I kind of kind of realized what I actually liked was the stuff I was into kind of first or yeah kind of interested me more okay so let's in the context of what you just said about dj culture um just going back to you know you as a dj i mean you mentioned before that you were playing out a bit in in dublin as part of the you know senior involved in but tell me a little bit about like how you saw well how you see that now as having developed over that time to a point where you became good (laughs) yeah i mean like uh so in Dublin, you like you know you play in clubs doing warm up, you know warm up set for like an hour or whatever, uh, if you're lucky, and then you just play kind of play it like after parties in people's houses with like terrible sound systems and just that was like you know that was like what what were the opportunities for like an up and coming artist in Dublin at that time, and then moving to Berlin it was obviously like you know because the parties go on so long you just had like slots where you could play and then like I ended up just kind of playing all over Berlin for like a few years um, and uh, yeah that's just I mean I played like so much I played like pretty much every club in Berlin I would say around those years you know just playing whatever sets and um, that's kind of how I developed as a DJ that's like that's 100% how I developed as a DJ putting in the hours essentially yeah exactly yeah exactly yeah yeah like we used to play like in bars like you know Wednesdays and Thursday nights and then like you play like you know a couple of different events every weekend or whatever but I remember I was playing like tons in Berlin at one stage um and yeah that was the making of me as a as a DJ like completely and I never would have had that that chance in Ireland I think and like what were you playing because obviously you mentioned that you know minimal wasn't necessarily <laughs> to your taste so like what was um what was in your sets back then how did that how did that develop over time um, it's quite funny actually I, I lost a, a CD wallet in Watergate in like about 2009 or something and then <laughs> they were clearing out their, their lost and fans like uh, a few years later and they contacted my agent and <laughs> I was like the man who loses CD wallet you know this is like <laughs> is literally like 10 years later okay. and so in that CD wallet I can see exactly what I was playing you know so it was actually like uh, it wasn't actually as bad as I thought it was going to be um, <laughs> So there was like, uh, there was still like quite a lot of, you know, or some like new disco kind of stuff. Um, and then like, I don't know, like some get physical kind of stuff. Uh, uh, and then kind of house, like, you know, um, but it was still, it was quite broad. It's actually like, I don't, I don't think my, my style has like changed that much. Like I'm still very open to like different kind of styles and stuff. Um, so yeah, it was like, I was never one thing. You know, you mentioned how like sort of ubiquitous the minimal thing was and I've always seen the kind of Berlin I guess I guess the Berlin music scene as being quite I wouldn't say closed-minded but quite sort of um like set um and quite resistant to change so like to what extent was there do you remember there being um like pressure to conform in a kind of musical kind of sense in your DJ in there I think like the pressure is more just because you're exposed to everyone doing the same thing so then you think that like oh, I should be doing that too. So right. there's a bit of that I'd say my first kind of year, maybe year or two in Berlin, where I was like, all oh, right, what I've been playing isn't like people don't really play that here. So I must be doing something wrong, you know. 
uh, it's only a day, only it's only later you you realize now you're probably doing something right. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think like a lot of, a lot of it's got to do with like you know if you have massive big long uh, opening hours, you know, there, you know, it's difficult to it's difficult to have such long parties with like loads of up and downs, you know, and energy and stuff. So you can understand why it gets quite linear and brilliant, you know. Okay, well, that's a yeah adjacent question because um like playing long sets was something that I had to adapt to <laughs> going over there. So I mean, I mean, I was my early DJing was very much in that kind of bass music one hour sets and just like smash it as hard as you can, you know, for for <laughs> for that period. And then adapting was you know it was it was certainly a bit of a challenge initially. So like, what what was your uh, well, how, how did you see, I and mean, what was your experience of playing longer sets? And like, you know, were there any particularly memorable ones that you know went on for a long time? Because I mean, I've got a few, but yeah, tell me about long sets. Yeah, I think I had like pretty much the same experience as you because like I came from you know the uh, more electro or whatever world in Ireland where it was like you know you have an hour to play if you're lucky, so you just want to be like smashing out straight away <laughs> like all the big tunes. Um, so yeah, getting to Berlin, you realize like you have to kind of keep the energy a bit more level. Um, yeah, so like we started in a party in, in Berlin called Passion Beat in like 2010, me and the Drifter. And uh, then we had to kind of learn that like, you know, we do the warm up and then we'd have another artist play and then we play the rest of the night. So, um, that was our like that and also like playing some bar gigs where you have to play for like eight hours you know, on like a Wednesday night and like Fab Ferns there or something. They were the ones that kind of taught you to, you know, pace yourself and, you know, not like use up all your energy at once. Um, yeah, so they were kind of long ones. And then obviously like later playing, like closing a panorama bar quite a lot. That, that was like the real, like, uh, you know, that's in a completely different league then again. Yeah, that's a, um, that's a challenging one. Um, but super, super, I mean, we you get it right, it's fucking great, right? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Mean, yeah, it's physically physically challenging. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, I, I remember coming back from playing a, a Burkheim closing and like, literally stepping on the scales and I'd lost two kilos in an, in an <laughs> evening. It's like... It's mad, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So um, that night that you just mentioned, was that like the, the, the precursor to Maeve or how, how uh, did... Um, not oh. really. Like, Passion Meat was kind of a separate thing. It was like me and uh, the drifter, Mark... So we like lived together in Berlin. He's from the same town as me in Ireland. We're like old buddies. Um, so it kind of is a precursor to Maeve in a way because like we were doing it together and then we were like, we should do a label. Um, so, but we started Maeve because one of our best friends in Berlin is uh, Mark Bale, who like, uh, he did music as, as Mark August. Um, he released some like, you know, uh, I don't know, Intervisions and Cocoon and stuff. Um, and then... Uh, yeah, then he stopped doing music for a little bit and then wanted to, or was making music, but then he wanted to change to the alias of Baikal. And um, Mark and I had been, like Drifter and I had been, uh, you know, talking about doing a label for a while. And then like, Mark was our best friend, so he was like, what should I do with these tracks? And then we, we were like, well, we should just put them out ourselves, you know. Um, and that's kind of why we started Maeve. I'm guessing then that you didn't have a whole lot of experience in, in terms of releasing records. No, zero. So <laughs> zero experience. <laughs> so 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 tell me about that then. Like um tell me about yeah, getting to grips with um what's required. <laughs> <laughs> I just like we just kind of did like, you know, we just learned as we went basically. Um 
Yeah, I don't know. It was just, you know, you just decide to do it and then you're like, okay, we're doing a label now. And then you're like, okay, how do we do that? <laughs> you, just ask, you just ask people you know who do it. And that was basically it, you know. So did you get like distribution immediately? Or I mean, presumably, presumably this was still in the, the days of doing everything on vinyl. So yeah, what, what, yeah. go on, like tell me about it. Yeah, so uh, we like have friends and stuff at Compact, so we got uh, distribution with Compact first, um, and uh, yeah, like the first records did pretty well and stuff. So um, well, that always helps. That makes a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't still be doing it. Yeah, so we just basically yeah we just started doing it, and then uh, yeah. But you had been releasing on permanent vacation already by that stage is yeah that right? yeah i had yeah 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 i'd done like a, a few 12s on permanent vacation and maybe the first album oh no i think the first album was actually after we started maybe yeah yeah i think it was like 2013 maybe the first yeah i, we'll, I mean we'll, we'll talk about albums sh- shortly so we've talked about berlin i just want to jump around a little bit here um i had a question about ibiza because um, I haven't actually talked about it at all in this podcast yet. And it's such a big part of the European club scene, I guess. But also it's its own thing as well, slightly separate from it. So, I mean, you've played a lot in Ibiza over the years. Certainly over the last 10 years, you've, you've, you've played loads of, different, loads of different parties. So, I mean, how do you see it? And like, did you, like, to what extent were you familiar with it before you went for the first time? Because I know from my, from my experience, the first time I went to Ibiza was to DJ. I'd never been yeah, there yeah. at all before. So what was your experience going into it? And then how do you see it having changed over the last 10 years? Yeah, like I, I had, a, I'd never gone before I DJed either. Um, so, and you know, I was so like in the kind of like Berlin, Panorama Bar, kind of mindset before I played in Ibiza you know so which are like two totally different mindsets <laughs> like two yeah. totally different worlds so um, yeah so I didn't have the thing of you know you know, some people like they have grown up with an idea of Ibiza as being like it you know I've been there the ultimate well I think if you go there when you're a kid then it completely, must completely change the way you think about it I, I would say so yeah 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 and and I guess it depends on what music you're into and stuff as well, you know. Just going back to what you said before, like, like how would you characterise the difference between the two places, between Berlin and Ibiza? What would be the, the defining features of each? One of them is very sunny and it's an island in the Mediterranean. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one isn't, basically. The other one's the, op- the complete opposite. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but just in terms of musically and the way you kind of think about DJing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're very different beasts because, like, one is people on holidays, you know, and the other is people on long-term holidays. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, you know they're just they're just very different. Um, in Ibiza, you know, you have like a certain amount of people who are into the music, and then you just have like a certain amount of people who are, in, who are just having a good time and they're on holidays, and that's totally fine. Um, <laughs> Whereas, you know, if you go to, if you're in Panorama Bar or whatever, it's, you know, people are there for that experience. It's just different. Um, yep. Yeah. So I don't know. They're just two totally different things and they're both good, you know. So yeah, tell me a bit about your, like the, the first few times you went there and where, where did you play and like, you know. I think the, the first time I played there was Circa Loco. Um, and I played there quite a lot for the first few years. Um, I mean that's that's the that's the night I guess in Ibiza which is most like a Berlin yeah night, totally probably. totally totally yeah. it's like 
you know, it's it, it's it's absolutely the closest thing to like a brilliant club night. Because like, you know, when you go to the other places, they're just so big and they're so, you know, you know, they're trying, they're trying to make money and whatever. And it's, which is, it's totally fine, but it's just different, you know. Uh, Circa Loco at least has some kind of, um, some, uh, some sort of feeling like, you know, the so-called underground music world. But yeah, like I actually, I, I've always quite enjoyed, I've always loved going to Ibiza, like, you know, super nice, really nice time. Um, and I actually enjoy playing there as well. I mean, Circa Loco initially started as a, as a minimal night, actually. It was yeah, yeah, um, yeah. very big in the development of that whole thing. Totally, a lot of the totally, yeah. big DJs came out of that. I mean, like, like a dice, for example. But with the other clubs, because I know you've played all over in Ibiza, like, give me a sense of like, you know, how you felt about stuff, places like, I don't know, space and amnesia and those kinds of places. Um, yeah, like, they're, you know, they're all just really different experiences. Like I played like a lot of uh, cocoon and amnesia, which is quite mm. cool, but it's, it's gigantic. Like, you know, um, it's just like, it's like the absolute epitome of a super club. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I actually think it's probably quite a good example of a super club, like, and that, and and in comparison to, I don't know, why well, I, I always like Damnation much more than I like Space, for example. Yeah, like the terrace in Space is pretty good. Um, yeah. But the main room in Space is, yeah, you know, uh, I played there once, I think, just before Carl Cox, and was like, all right. When he started, I was like, all right, that's how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess, I mean, he was Mr. Space, right? I guess. Exactly, so, yeah. yeah. How, like, how has it changed then? Because I, 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 my experience of Ibiza is that, like, I think I went for the first time in 2012 or some somewhere, somewhere around then. And it felt like it was like, it was sort of the, sort of the end of something, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then over the subsequent few years, you know, stuff happened like, you know, the, the emergence of like Croatia as a kind of holiday, you know, a clubbing destination for want of a better term. And that seemed to like take something away from Ibiza. I think, I think Ibiza just got too expensive for younger kids. Yeah, exactly. It's, so yeah, so what were your observations? Like? Ibiza's changed from being like, you know, the destination for like, you know, late teens, early 20s people, especially from the UK. There, you know, a lot of those people are going to Croatia now, which is just way cheaper. Um, and that just means for the bigger clubs in Ibiza, it's been, it's been affected, like, you know, so space obviously gone um like privilege i don't know really what goes on there that much anymore um amnesia like is really difficult to fill now because you just don't have that mass of people who want to go clubbing i mean it's enormous right you need three four thousand people really to make it look good exactly exactly and like when it becomes too expensive then you just like that market kind of disappears a bit um but then you go to like places like pasha you know like pasha does really well now and that's it's not that huge and there's a lot of people with money you know so Ibiza's kind of gone in that direction quite a lot. Like you have way more tables and like high is kind of, you know, obviously the replacement for space. You know, it's like really slick, whereas space was not really slick. Um, and it's smaller, but then you have like tables and that kind of just tells you like where where the market is now in Ibiza. Circuit Locos kind of survived still because, you know, you still have, um, you know, tons of Italians and you know, the people go there still have money and stuff as well. So that's just kind of the direction it's gone, I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the details of the, you know, the economics of it, but there's something obviously something different about Circo Loco. Maybe they've got lower overheads or something that enables them to to do what they do. But I mean, the flip side of it is that they're always packed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 
they definitely have and they have amazing, amazing marketing you know and they're not trying to do too many nights every week so that's like I think the biggest thing it's like okay if you have amnesia try to fill that like seven days a week you know <laughs> it was okay in the 90s when you had like I don't know how many thousand people from the UK and from Italy and whatever um, but those people just aren't they're not quite there in the numbers they were before um, yeah so it's just changed and you know it's been a bit of a policy from the people in Ibiza you know from the community there and the people in business and stuff because like for them it's like they get less people with more money you know it takes some of the pressure off the islands and yeah probably less problems and stuff so yeah there's definitely sort of conflicting forces and like I guess from the sort of municipal authorities perspective they're probably not that understandably not that keen on having just armies of kids but then you know that was what made it good in the first place so I mean yeah yeah. yeah it's just changed you know and yeah. like everything, I mean, nothing stays the same forever anyway, so. Yeah. So uh, an adjacent question to that would be um, on more recently, the uh, the topic of quote unquote playgraves, which is a slightly ridiculous term. But, you know, by definition, when you keep the entire population inside for two years, it was, it was pretty clear to me that there was going to be some... Um, pent up sort of anger you know and i got expressed in different ways and the playgraves thing really seemed to touch a nerve with people um there were some people really angry about that um so what what was your view on it and i mean did you play any (laughs) (laughs) yeah they were great (laughs) (laughs) it made so much money yeah yeah yeah, it's great the only uh, no you can understand people's like anger and their frustration their frustration you know because they feel like they're doing their base and, you know, they're protect- protecting their, maybe their family or their community. And then they just see like videos of online of like <laughs> someone playing a gig for like 5,000 people in, uh, I don't know, wherever. Um, so it's just totally understandable that there was that kind of reaction. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's it's a perfect example of something that people are not going to be talking about. They're, they're not talking about it anymore and they won't be talking, definitely won't be talking about it in a few months time, you know. So do you think that the bad publicity that was generated by that for certain like high profile people that that will you know that there will be no like longer term fallout? I I can't say I honestly I don't know. Um but my feeling is that it'll have very little effect because if, if if people people get booked because they bring people to their clubs. So if their audience will still come and see them, I don't think they're going to care about where they played like two years ago. Okay, so this is an interesting kind of direction, actually, because obviously with recent political developments, there's been a bit of, you know, well, there's been a lot of toing and froing, to put it mildly, on on social media concerning certain DJs who may or may not have, you know, expressed themselves in a way which is um, palatable to um, certain people. So... I mean, I wonder what you think about like expressing your like wider views and politics and and all the rest of that stuff through, I mean, through music, but also through, I guess, you know, just the way you present yourself as a as an artist. You know, like how, how do you how do you see that? Yeah, it's a tricky subject because you know there's two ways to do it, or there's pretty more than two ways actually. But you can either be like super political about everything or not be political at all. Um, but there's definitely some topics that affect us all pretty much that, you know, people should talk about. Um, but yeah, it's just like, you know, if you're 
a DJ has suddenly become a public figure, like, you know, <laughs> like, like pre-internet, who cared, who cared what, like any 90s big DJ, what their political, what their political uh, views were. Like it just, it was not an issue, you know? Yeah, I'm pretty sure Brandon Block wasn't like <laughs> pontificating <laughs> on the, uh, the state of parliamentary democracy. You know? Maybe at the after party somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but that's exactly what's happened. So now it's like if you have a following, um, obviously you have a platform. Um, yeah, it just depends if you want to use it or not. Um, but these things, is, you know, there's so many grey areas and all this <clears throat> and people have different opinions. Um, and yeah, it's tricky. But I mean, how do you address it personally? How do I address it? Um, mm. Honestly, the one thing that I want to avoid is controversy or to, you know, get into arguments because I just don't have the energy or the, I just cannot be bothered. Um, I mean, I guess like the problem with the, the way people look about it now is like a lot of the time not saying something is even worse. Is as, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's a pressure to, to have a view, you know, there's a pressure for DJs to have a view about everything now. Um, so I guess you just have to choose your battles pretty much. I mean, it's interesting what you said about um, it's a sort of all or nothing element to it. So if it, once, you've, once you've gone in on one thing, then people expect you to continue and have an opinion on everything and maybe just completely staying out of it enables you to, you know, maybe kind of dodge some of the heat. Yeah. But I mean, like, and I think that definitely there are quite a lot of people, not just DJs, but, you know, people in the public or people, some people in entertainment, should say, um, who just don't engage with it at all. Yeah, yeah. And and there's pretty heavy incentive actually to take that kind of path, which is, you know, I guess that's, you know, that, that's not without its complications in itself though. Yeah, well, it just depends really, you know, if someone calls you out on it or not, you know. And, right. and like, there's some people who don't really do social media. So like, how can you call them out? You know, and that's the thing. If you if you do use social media, you kind of are exposed. So then you kind of feel like you should have to have a view, or you feel the pressure to have a view. Some people have specifically they don't really do social media. There's very few now, but there are a few. Well, I, mean, I can think of one example in particular: um, a well-known German DJ who <laughs> does he was, have long hair? He he may have long hair, yeah. <laughs> and he was a regular fixture at those playgraves. In okay. fact, yeah, yeah, and. Um, I, I don't know because like there are people who seem to be like Teflon I know I know I know I agree and um, why is that um why is that I don't know they're very lucky I suppose <laughs> but, but I mean just but just saying nothing really I mean all of those people say nothing essentially you just you just continue on and like I, yeah I think they just but some people like do say something about something and then they they have behavior which is like you know maybe doesn't go along with how they've you know portrayed themselves in other in other uh, in other ways so like i don't know yeah but some people just like have made a decision a long time ago to just stay out of everything that would get you know get them in any sort of trouble so they just kind of keep on keeping on doing their thing basically you know are, are you in that group then i mean like some things I feel like I have to say something about, you know, like I feel extremely bad about what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. Yeah. Um, and that's something that kind of affects us all, you know. So, uh, yeah. But in general, I'm not one to like pick fights and stuff. I just like, I, I'm too like, I don't know. I'm too sensitive, I think, to get into that with people. And I just like, it would just wreck my head too much, basically. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a difference between 
like voicing an opinion and then actually going into the back and forth with individuals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I prefer, prefer to avoid that as much as possible, honestly. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I made the mistake of in my in my younger days. No, I don't believe that, it. Doing that far too much. <laughs> um, I, was, I would not recommend anyone starting there, <laughs> starting out as a musician to go down that road. I really, I really wouldn't. Yeah, just, yeah. Just, just go down the complete uh, uh, yeah, complete absence of any comment line is, a, is a definitely a better path <laughs> yeah, yeah. to take. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so another, another question kind of still on this topic in this very kind of area anyway was going back to to Debbie I, I actually had this on a list of questions to ask him and I didn't get around to it but like he has um well, in fact the first like sentence on his wiki page is Debbie makes music which is often political okay and a criticism which he has had which I noticed was was basically that like how can instrumental music be political it's kind of an interesting one. I mean, it's well. I mean, there's, there's lots of examples of, for example, like orchestral music being explicitly or being taken to be explicitly political and being written to be explicitly political. So, I wonder how you feel about like expressing directly through music. My political views, not just your political views. I, I guess, like, I mean, because I mean, the, the reason I, I yeah. the reason I noted it down as a question was because you're you've been quite consistent in previous interviews about wanting to like express like express emotion yeah, through yeah. music through music and i guess like you know politics are you know it, it's different but it's sort of in the same ballpark you know in terms of like really ha- having something concrete to say through through an instrumental you know so what how do you think about that yeah i mean like i like why i write music is just because i'm kind of compelled to do it you know um I feel like I need to express myself um, and that's just the medium that I use. Um, in terms of being political, I would say I'm pretty apolitical in my music. Um, but in terms of like emotional stuff and whatever, I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty okay with being open about that. And uh, yeah, if you sing, like you kind of are open for that unless you like, you know, you're really. Yeah, I guess I guess that was my question really because obviously you do sing on certain tracks, but the majority of your stuff is is instrumental. So like I mean, how do you um like how do you see like instrumental music in terms of its messaging, I guess? A lot of it I would say is about like you know, kind of evoking like moods and you can evoke um emotions with like chords and melody and stuff. So, um yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> definitely, it's definitely possible to make extremely emotional music without. Uh, oh no, with, absolutely, yeah, totally. <laughs> but I mean, vocals. Sure, um, but when you use vocals, it becomes extremely personal, you know, right? Because it's your That's voice, <laughs> and for whatever reason, I do that. Um, which, yeah, not it's not that common. I would say for electronic music producers to do that. I guess it's become more common maybe the last few years, but. Um, yeah, I just kind of feel compelled to do it. I've always written songs, you know, since I was like quite young and stuff. So, when was the what was the first Man on the Tough track that you put a vocal on? Um, it was called In Your Arms. I think it's on it's on International and Prince Thomas's label. And yeah. so it was quite um, a big thing to start singing on the records, like you know. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. I just, mean, that's uh, just really putting especially yourself when out you there. can, especially when I, I certainly couldn't sing very well. <laughs> I'm slightly better now, but not much better. <laughs> so that's even more of a risk. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, just, I mean, I was ta- I was talking to Tiger about this, and you know, obviously he's like basically known for his you know vocals. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but he'd had basically zero training, was coming to it completely cold. But it takes a like a 
very high degree of confidence to just to put yourself out there like that. And uh, he, he he's an extremely confident person. But like, <laughs> do, do you do you see yourself like? I mean, how confident are you generally in your music? I don't think I'm an extreme. I don't think I'm an extremely confident person at all. Uh, <laughs> so um, I don't know. I just kind of felt like compelled to do it or whatever as part of what I was doing musically. So it's just like an instrument for me, and it's just a way to express myself. Um, yeah, so it's just be part of the process that I do now. You know, is like come up with melodies and stuff, and then just end up singing them quite a lot. Uh, yeah, but I don't think it's got that much got to do with confidence for me. I mean, it's definitely. I mean, you must have some sort of confidence if you know your vocals aren't that great and you're still putting them out. But I'm not sure if that's confidence oh, yeah. or stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably a fine line between those two things. A lot <laughs> yeah, of the definitely. Time, yeah. I mean, the way you just described it is is almost like using the vo- using the voice as an instrument, but obviously there's lyrics too, and lyrics lyrics are really the thing that make it really personal. Yeah, yeah. So, what about that side of it? Yeah, I mean, it's like it's been a journey, kind of like doing it, you know, and developing because you're like you're also like you know you're kind of develop you you're growing in public doing it as well. So, yep. like my stuff at the start was not great, but you get the odd vocal hook and stuff that that people really identify with, and like. I always loved like dance records that had like just some vocals in it because I always thought they elevated the music. It's like, you know, like something like, like, I don't know, Carl Craig went through that period of like doing like all those amazing remixes, you know, like like a child and like all around that time. Yep. And like when he had like a vocal and you just use like some little bits in it and stuff, it would just be like, I don't know, just completely elevate the records. So I think that was always like a one of my main motivations for doing it. It's just just adds like human elements on top of the the music you know absolutely does but in terms of writing lyrics yeah i just like like, uh, sing them while i'm doing it and then either record them then or sometimes write it down um and they just kind of come to me when i'm doing it although some come when i'm walking down the street like primitive people i remember i was like walking down the street around the corner from my apartment in berlin i just got that phrase and that was kind of the start of that song so you like a kind of Noel Gallagher, it just fucking rhymes, man, approach to, to lyrics, or is there <laughs> something more to it? Yeah, part of it. I mean, like, uh, there's a bit of that, and then there's a bit of, like, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, have you seen the Beatles, uh, the the new Beatles documentary? I haven't done it yet, actually. No, when they're yet. when they're writing songs, because you just realise they're just messing. Like, I was talking to my friends about it afterwards, and they're like, that was like us when we were like doing music together like you're just messing and just coming out with stuff and then stuff's kind of sticks and then you just use that and you just go on with that and that's kind of like songwriting you know yeah 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 totally I think I think most of the attempts to kind of intellectualise it are inaccurate frankly. yeah 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 it's like Bob Dylan records where he's like people are like well what is he on about it's like not much I'd say <laughs> <laughs> not much <laughs> yeah right I mean that, that brings us on to like key records and like albums and all that kind of stuff i just had a, a uh something a quick question written down which was concerning the primitive people remixes you said in an interview there was some bad publicity around that and i completely missed that so so what what happened with that oh the primitive people <laughs> um yeah what what i just remember it being a good tune so what, what, yeah yeah, what yeah. Went down? oh no it was just like it was, it was like a huge record it was like you know just like a massive record that kind of summer was it 2013 was it I think 2013 yeah. and um yeah, but yeah we just got a bad review in ra and then i was like oh, is that all it was everyone was like giving out about it like everyone like uh but but was it the um it was it the tale of us mix that got slated yeah like the whole record i think 
the, <laughs> the Dix, oh, was the that Dixon the, was mix that? and the Televus remix. It was like the biggest. It was like the biggest tune of the summer, basically. And then they got like two out of five, and they just slated the whole thing. <laughs> was that when they criticised your singing? Yeah, I know. The criticism was saying so cruel. Oh, which man, was fair, low, which it, was man? fair enough, though. But like, still, you know, I was so sensitive about my singing at that time. Yeah, totally. Um, and I was like, oh, for Christ's sake! And like, I was seeing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those are the days so where embarrassing. Those, those are the days gone, gone. No, you go on. Well, I was just going to say that those were the days where reviews really meant something because, um, especially you know, RA reviews at that well, time. Well, that's the thing because <laughs> in my in my conversation conversation with Machine John, we were talking about him getting five out of five for his Rooms album on RA, and that being a you know for an album that's yeah you know, it's just great publicity. But but now it's just like I don't think anyone gives a shit about reviews at all now. Yeah, if people, is that fair? Yeah, people. I just yeah, it was like that time when it was like you know if someone had like a music blog they would have this massive audience. And like, yeah. you know, it was like, they were the voice of music, you know? And journalists, they were like, had this, I don't know. Maybe we were younger as well, but no, I think it's definitely changed. Like, because there was at one point when it was like, that was all like super important and now less so. Yeah, I mean, just in the ter- in terms of the like, the way like PR for a record works now, like it used to be that a big job of a PR was to get lots of reviews and that's just not true anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just not as relevant as it was, basically. Um, and there's various well, why, reasons why do you for think that. Is, yeah, well, why, why do you think? Uh, I don't know. Social media. Blame social media for everything, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> what, I mean, do you mean that the discussion just happens organically without having to need to coalesce around a certain thing? Or No, I just think, I just think people like, uh, they consume most of their internet through social media, through Instagram and through whatever now. So it's like people don't, they probably don't visit ORA as much, you know. It's like there's other things they spend their time online looking at. That leads me nicely on to um, a question that I had about the RA poll. We'll go back to your albums, but let me just ask you this now. Because, well, the last one was in 2016. Yeah. And you'd been doing pretty well in I that had, poll. I had. I really had. well. So, like, how did that, f- it must have affected your career a bit. Because I think the reason, well, part of the reason why they, they shut it was because it was becoming too much of a thing in the business. Like, it was becoming too much of a, you know, a pitch from, you know, booking agents and all that side of stuff. And it was just, and and also I think, like, people were beginning to win the editorial didn't like too much, which was a, yeah, a sort yeah, of yeah, less, yeah. A less, a less honest reason for them to start. Totally. Um, get rid of it. But, like, I, actually, I think it was. I think it was very possibly because they thought Salado might win in twenty seventeen. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it's funny because artists like that didn't actually do that well. Like you know, yeah, I I think they did some advanced polling, and there was a there was a real danger. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Dick Dixon being unseated by uh, a couple of lads from Manchester, which uh, would no not not have gone down too well in RA Towers. No, they would have hated that. In, uh, in hated so, <laughs> but yeah, tell me tell me about how like how it affected. How it affected you? Yeah, I mean, like, it had a massive effect on my career. You know, it's just like, yeah, it's funny. It just shows you, like, how how people consume stuff or, like, even booking agents, even people that, like, put on shows and they just see that and then they would literally book people because of it. So I think, like, the highest I got was, like, number eight or something. And that was probably, like, at the kind of peak of popularity of the poll. It was around yeah. those years, you know, because it had been going on for quite a while. I think Ryan Elliott won the first one. Really? Did he? Didn't he? Wow. Okay. I don't know. I, th- I think I, he I might. I think he might have. <laughs> I think he did. <laughs> but you know, so it had been going on for like like for years. Um, I mean, and it was very uh, much of that. Um, 
the kind of 2000s RA, which was very much that, it, it reflecting that minimal sound. So, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, sorry, go on. But anyway, yeah, so, like, it did become this, like, massive thing. And you know, it was actually really, really stressful, actually, in the last few years because, you know, I don't know, it just became this really annoying, like, kind of, like, big, I know, man. big competitive I know, thing that was just made into, like, <clears throat> into, like, a ball of stress before the results came out. Yeah, no? I think I had my highest one in, like, 2011 or 2012 or something, and then I was just dropping every year, and I was just I know, like, yeah, I was, oh, I was no, how much am I going to drop this year? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, so it it definitely had that uh, that kind of uh, that big uh, stressful effect on a lot of people, um, but you know a lot of people benefited from it as well. Like I know I definitely did because um, it was just great publicity. You know, that's basically what it was. Like if you were high up on that, it was just like so many eyes were on that every year. By the time it finished, that was just like literally the best publicity you could have at that time. I'd say for bookings, so- for bookings anyway. You know. Yeah, I mean that was the thing, wasn't it? It was yeah. it was promoters looking at it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, it just directly translated to like the lineups that were like um, a lot of clubs and vessels in that time. So, so like the lack of it made like has there been a difference in the way you? Well, okay. So, I mean, I guess anyone who makes music has a kind of um, it's a trade off between you know doing expressing yourself artistically and making a living. Essentially, there's there's always that element to it. So is that yeah the the um you know the RA poll for people who did well kind of took care of a lot of that business side just in just in its existence. So so does the has the lack of it um well how did the lack of it change your approach to that other side the slightly more cynical side of being a musician? Um it didn't really change my approach at all really to be honest like I was just lucky to kind of have benefit for, benefited of that from that like for about, I don't know, four years in a row or whatever. Um, and then after that, you know, it was established enough that, like, as long as it went and turned up and played well at the shows and stuff, it kind of get booked and stuff again, you know? So, yeah, after that, I mean, yeah, I was kind of happy it was finished, to be honest, because it just been, like, turned into this, like, kind of stress-related experience every year, which I didn't really enjoy. And I don't like, I mean, like, asking people for votes or whatever, it's just, like, so, oh, so not my cup of tea. You know, so not into that. So that was I'm the worst so, part of it, wasn't it? I'm so anti-politics or anything, you know, that I'm just like, oh Christ, this just makes me cringe. So <laughs> I could never be, I could never be a politician, you know. That was definitely the worst aspect. Just watching everyone, all your mates, like just like prostituting themselves in the in the name of getting votes. Yeah, I know, shocking. <laughs> all right. Well, listen. Um, let's uh, let's go back to what I was going to be talking about before this. Um, we've actually been chugging along for a while now so um i want to get into albums um because actually like the um 2014 coincide well your first album come out in 2013 so yeah in the sort of aftermath of that poll finishing and the relief of not having that bullshit every year yeah um you've been a regular releaser of albums um yeah quite regular yeah pretty regular yeah. um what it's been you've released four i think is it i've released three so okay. the first two were quite close together, and then the last one was just last year. So, so yeah. I, okay, I'm, I'm getting confused. Okay. So yeah, the most the most recent one on Pamper in yeah. 2020 last year. Yeah. So I mean, going through your catalogue in the you know in doing a little bit of prep for this, like yeah. what, what struck me about it was actually there's a it's, it's quite high degree of like consistency of of mood and the general kind of vibe of your stuff. Going back oh, to yeah. the going back like basically since the start yeah, yeah and it's it's been more of a kind of like refinement 
over time, yeah. I think, is how I would, yeah, that's fair. So um, tell me about, tell me about how you approach making an album. In fact, no, let's, just before that, yeah. I, a question I'm asking everyone is, um, how do you feel about the format generally now? Like, is it relevant? And I mean, presumably you do think it's relevant because you just released one. But like, I mean, how do you feel about its, its change over time? And like, you know, how do you feel about them generally? It has completely changed since I was growing up. That is for sure. You know, it used to be the ultimate, you know, artistic statement. And, you know, people would like, I was obsessed with albums when I was a kid, like growing up, you know, there were just those great albums. You just like literally just be upset, uh, like completely obsessed and know every, every corner of them. Um, that's obviously changed because there's more music around now and um, obviously formats have changed how people consume music has changed Um, you know like kind of what you can see happening now is like people do an album but they really they release almost all the tunes as singles in the run up to the album so by the time the album comes out it's actually everything's already done like the work is done the kind of success from the album is already done by the time it comes out, people are just kind of finished with it. So, mm. you know, it kind of weirdly enough, as a vehicle, it kind of started to make sense again. Um, now, just because of like streaming and stuff, and you can release a lot of singles from the album beforehand. So, I think it's actually they almost make more sense to put out. Like, it makes more sense to put out an album than to put out EPs at the moment. I think, in some way. Um, but yeah, I don't know. But for my own thing, my own kind of. Uh, experience of it is like uh, I just kind of enjoy making them I enjoy kind of like putting the tracks together and you know putting a collection of music together to put out basically and like to what extent do you see it as a <clears throat> to what extent do you see your the albums that you've released as being like individual statements like of of, of themselves as opposed to just a collection of tracks like is, is that something that's, that's important to you or is it more of a because um, I guess it's like mm. I guess there's sort of two approaches, like the first kind of like, I guess the, the high concept, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, progressive rock style <laughs> approach. And then the other approach, which is like, you know, still, I guess, striving for a degree of consistency, but like worrying a bit less about that. So, I mean, how have you approached it? Yeah, I'd say I'm definitely kind of, um, definitely be more like the second example, you know, um, mm. I would always just, I, I like just making like a lot of music and then kind of seeing what fits together. And they usually kind of fit together mood wise because I'm making the tracks roughly at the same time or in the same period. But there's not like, I'm not like making like Dark Side of the Moon or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. And uh, so you've released albums on Permanent Vacation and Pampa. So give me an idea of how, how those processes differed and, you know, t- to what extent were you know, was there A&R input and, and all of that stuff? I'm kind of interested in, you know, the approach, different approach of, of labels to that. So, yeah. Yeah, me I mean, like, Permanent Vacation are very kind of hands-off with that. Like, yeah. you literally send them the tracks and they'd be like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know, like, that's, <laughs> and, it, and the, with the first record, that kind of worked pretty well for me um, because I had like you know a clear idea of what I wanted to do with the second record I just kind of wanted to put it out I, I really I should have taken my time or not put out the record um, because it just wasn't really ready I just was in a mad kind of I don't know headspace of like yeah I need to do this now and then I'll yeah I don't know I just kind of rushed it I just made a kind of mistakes with it personally um, and I probably could have done with a bit more oversight from the label to be like here this isn't right. really ready or whatever you know um, yeah. 
and then working on the last record I actually had quite a lot of like back and forth with Cozy um, just about yeah individual tracks and like a tiny bit in arrangements and stuff and like track listing and he's their way he was way more hands on you know um which was which is a good experience yeah what's it like working with him yeah, yeah he's like a very interesting person you know he's very he's quite eccentric um mm. but i get on well with him um yeah it's like it's a per, you know like everyone has their personalities <laughs> yeah. um and the dynamics between people or whatever but we, we seem to yeah we get on pretty well like in terms of yeah I don't know similarish kind of visions and stuff I mean how, how did it come together you you releasing the album with, with him um, yeah it was actually like I think if we first kind of uh, decided to do it like uh, for like three or four years ago but then they had some problems with the label or whatever um, so then it was kind of in limbo for a while and then they kind of sorted their stuff out and then we, I was just like sending him music to listen to or whatever and uh, then he, he liked it or whatever and then was like can we still do the record so that's basically it and I mean the other label that I have you associated with in my mind but I don't think it's actually really that accurate is Innervisions yeah. Um, yeah was there any was, it, was there ever a possibility of doing something on there or like what was your what's your you know involvement with them yeah we had kind of like talked about stuff in the past but um uh, yeah like they were really helped me so much especially with my kind of like DJ career they like booked me like for a lot of the kind of for a lot of their events and stuff um, and yeah like I played with the guys quite a lot um, and I, they're good friends of mine so uh, well, that was that just from getting to know them around Berlin yeah pretty much yeah I guess so yeah yeah exactly it was like you know we go to like uh, to, to their nights they remember they used to do takeovers of Panorama Bar and Burkhardt so we used to always go to those and we kind of got to, to know them around that kind of time and um, yeah they really supported my kind of early records and stuff um, and then yeah the kind of relationship grew from there yeah we we talked a bit before about about Maeve about the label that you run so was that I mean have you ever been tempted to to just take control of the process entirely for to do an album yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah I mean we, that was definitely like for the last record that was also on the table Um and we were kind of deciding to do that or not. Um, but then we decided to do it with Pampa just to kind of use their network and stuff as well. Um, but yeah, it is like something I would definitely consider in future. Yeah. Having really good A&R oversight can be really useful. Yeah. It's just great to get someone else's ears on stuff and someone who like kind of... Who, you but know, like crucially, someone who's actually got buy into the whole project though as well, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and someone who will like tell you that, like, you know... They show it to my friends. They're like, "Yeah, it's great." It's just like that. It's just useless. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like, thanks, but like, <laughs> it's just yeah, the worst. The yeah. worst. Okay. Well, listen. There's uh, one more thing I wanted to ask you before we go, um, which was basically throw me some albums that were influential on you. I mean, you just said that like the album as a thing was you know just key growing up. So give me some. Give me some of your favorite albums. Ah. Uh. So I always find it's difficult. Um, yeah, so like, I don't know, I look at different parts of my life. So Nirvana, Nevermind, when I was like yeah. eight. Um, Appetite for Destruction, Guns N' Roses, when I was also around that age. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then like, yeah, I mean, I'm literally going through it chronologically. So then like the Prodigy Experience, 
Um, remember getting that on CD? Mm. When I don't know, whenever when did that come out? Ninety four. Uh, which one? Sorry, Project the, Experience. Project Experience. Yeah, yeah, 92, that was ninety two. I think was it? Yeah, yeah. I remember had that. Um, then like yeah, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Um, yeah, <laughs> Neil Young, Harvest. Yeah, no, I guess it's like a lot of like that sort of music that I grew up with. Um, and yeah, Talking Heads, basically like their whole back catalogue. Um, it's massively into um, yeah I don't know and then after that it's just a big blur of like way too much music but yeah okay so that's that's interesting so well, yeah, one one very last thing then because you've just named mostly um, non yeah non-electronic albums so how do you see like electronic music fitting in to album like the album format generally because it's, it's, it's sometimes a bit of an awkward fit I've, yeah I absolutely absolutely I mean my favourite what you know think about what are your favourite dance records and then ask yourself how many of those have been on albums yeah exactly and it's almost zero you know yeah. yeah I just yeah it's weird I think that's also why when I make records I don't try and like you know I might have one or two tunes on the on that you can play out but most of it's like yeah you know, it's not like dance tracks, basically. Right. Yeah. Um. So definitely must be the influencer. Cool. Well, listen, mate. Thank you very much for doing this. It's All been, right. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. That was Mano Latuff, and um, yeah, that was a fun conversation. Um, it was really interesting getting into the Ibiza stuff, and also. Uh, you know, the way he thinks about instrumental music and adding vocals and, um, you know, the uh, mental hurdles one has to get over or not when um, putting yourself out there as a vocalist when you're not really a vocalist. Um, yeah, so that was cool. Um, Mano has remixed a couple of tracks that are coming out on Hot Flush on Thursday. I really should have mentioned this at the top, but I totally forgot. Um, <laughs> that's my brand. Um, so two tracks by Kimmy. That's her last EP on Hot Flush, Trust and Lanzarote Howl. Um, so yeah, those are out Friday the 11th of March and they're great. So if you go to hotflush.bandcamp.com, uh, you can check those out right now. And as I said, full release on Friday. Um, so just before I go, um, leave us a review leave us a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast it really does help join us in the discord there's a link in the show notes to join that discord server and then within that there is a not the diving podcast channel you can hit us up on follow the spotify playlist also in the show notes and that's about it i will see you same time same place next week for the next episode of the not a diving podcast Not a diving podcast. Let's go, wow.